Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Getting married for tax reasons. We find out why more older couples are saying I do to protect their wealth. As we await the results of the UK general election, what might tomorrow's politicians do to the UK pension system? And Baroness Rosaltman joins us to debate the financial consequences of quantitative easing. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you this week's money news in downloadable form. Roses are red, violets are blue, the taxman has said that I must marry you. It's hardly the most romantic of reasons to get married, but more and more older couples are realising the financial advantages of getting hitched. Joining me to explain why is the FT money writer David Stevenson, who finally married his partner of 20 years last month. David, welcome and congratulations. Yes, thank you very much. A joyous event. (laughs) Well, you say in your piece this week, I'm a raging atheist. I've never seen the point of marriage. Mm -hmm. What happened? Well, I suppose it was it was a combination of my my accountant. Every time I'd go and see him, he kept going, "You know what, David? Are you married yet?" And 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 I would initially kind of my hackles would be raised, thinking, "What's what business of it is?" And then when he bothered to explain it to me, what the implications are, I sort of began to think, "Hmm, maybe he's got a point." And then my next door neighbour, who's also kind of financially aware, kept saying, mm, are you two married yet? And it was just like, oh, just go away. But then when you look into it and you actually begin to understand the consequences, and it's a natural function of time, really. I, as you get older, as you get older, you get a, a little bit wealthier because you've accumulated wealth. True. You have kids. True. The kids get older. And then when you pop your clogs, for instance, you never like to think about it. But when you get to a certain point, in your, any point really after the mid, mid-40s, you, you begin to think about these things. You then realize that the tax implications are absolutely horrendous. And then you sort of you go through this kind of mental process where you go, well, I'm really opposed to the idea of it. But you know what? Mm, it might just be easier just to do it, get, get married. Now, of those reasons, the biggest difference between married and non-married couples is likely to be the impact of the new inheritance tax laws. Tell yeah. us why. OK, so the reality of it is, is that you can work your way around a lot of the things that cause problems for cohabiting couples, which uh, this idea of common law marriage, which doesn't exist, really. You can sign sorts of agreements and you can make understandings and that kind of stuff. But the reality of it is, the simple basic reality of it is, is there's lots and lots of people in the UK now who have a property that is probably worth half a million, one million, one and a half million. The days mm-hmm. when, that, that, when that was unique and, spe- and special, gone. Lots of people have got that. So at the moment, the, the, the limit is £325,000 each for any inheritance IHT. That's the, the nil rate ban. Now, 
There is a slight quirk here, which is that last year the government introduced an additional, uh, every year over the next, I think it's the next four years or three years into 2021, that, that, that limit, the 325 for the House, is going up. But the reality of it is, if you're a single person, it's 325,000. So if you, if you own the property, yeah, for instance, and your property is worth 1 million, and you drop dead tomorrow, then effectively you could face IHT of 1 million minus 325,000 pounds. And the other crucial thing is, is that also if you die without a will, your common law partner doesn't even get necessarily the property because under the law, the, 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 the a common law partner is not recognized as necessary the first person it goes to. Now, when you get married, you can do the £325,000 times two. Right you both get, get that allowance. Yeah, you already get that, 650000 straight away. And you can transfer that allowance back and forth between married couples and those in the civil relationship, civil partnership. And um, it makes it less complicated when it comes to to inheritance. Obviously, if you die yes. without a will, yes. um, the children would normally have the first claim on your estate rather than the common law partner. So at this point, I'm going to bring in the FT statistician Federica Coco, who has also written about this in FT Money this week. And she's approached the story from a slightly different angle. So Federica, firstly, while marriage rates generally are in decline, the only group of people you found who were going against this trend were, like David... The over 40s. Yeah, yeah uh, David is definitely not on his own. I was having a look at statistics on first marriages, so I disregarded widows who were getting remarried or people who had just gone through a divorce and got decided to get married again. So I just looked at first marriages, and it used to be that between 2 and 4% of uh, first marriages were people over 40 is getting married. And then there was a spike in the mid-90s, both for men and women, and mm. now... For men, it's around 12% of first marriages that regard men over 40. Right. And for women, it's about 8%. So one reason uh, behind uh, this rise could be you know, changing economic circumstances, especially for women. They decide to invest more in their career. There are better fertility treatments, so they feel like they can wait. It takes them longer to buy either a house. And people who are wealthier have much higher marriage rates. Yes, I think that's very, very interesting. You know, clearly the trend is that the more money you have, the more likely you are to to think of, you know, the marriage bond. Yeah, I found out that 84% of people in the richest quintile are married and that compares to 40% of people in the poorest quintile. Wow. And then while David has capitulated by getting married, this isn't going to be the answer for everyone because cohabitation is by far and away the sore away trend here. Yeah, I uh, looked at the statistics for the past 20 years and the number of couples that choose to cohabit, this is both same-sex couples and opposite-sex couples, have doubled. And by comparison, married couples have increased by, uh, I think it's just over about 10,000 or something like that. They've remained fairly stable. And so people are choosing increasingly to live together rather than get married. So you think that rather than forcing people to get married in order to gain the protection of these laws, the government should actually turn it on its head? Yeah, they should just accept that society has changed. And instead, what the government has been doing is pushing for uh, policies, uh, tax credits, and they've run campaigns as well to encourage people to get married. 
former Prime Minister David Cameron said that it was the safest type of family for children, and yet a higher share of cohabiting couples have children than married couples. And so clearly these, these things aren't working, these policies aren't pushing people in that, in that direction. So David, just finally to come back to you, you say in your piece that you feel like a bit of a sellout for, yeah. for, for having got married. I mean, I think that you've, you've, you've done a, a sensible and lovely thing, personally. Yes, but the problem is, is that, you know, that those of us of a, more, of a kind of slightly more unusual persuasion in terms of religion and, and attitude towards hierarchy, uh, and, and also I don't really like the fact that weddings have been turned into an enormous commercial industry. Well, I'm with I, you there. Yeah, and I've got, I've got nieces and nephews spending countless tens of thousands of pounds. And it's all good and well saying, oh, you can't just pop down the registry office and do it like we did. Um, but the pr- social pressure is enormous. And, and, and I, I completely uh, echo what Frederica said, which is, look, the reality of it is there's lots and lots of people who just don't want to have to do this. You know, they don't want to have to go for a whole rigmarole. Why don't you just recognise that, that's what they, that they, have, they should have the same rights that everybody else does, particularly if they have kids? Uh, it just strikes me as logical. And it is something which MPs of all persuasions have been trying to push for for many years. And in fact, it's noticeable that various law commissions have basically weighed in on this and said, really, come on, guys, you should do this. It should change this. And, and virtually every government for the last 10 years has completely ignored their recommendations. Well, thanks very much there to the FT's Federica Coco and to David Stevenson. You can read their full story, Getting Married for Tax Reasons, now on ft.com slash money or pick up a copy of the FT Weekend newspaper this Saturday. And don't forget, there are still a few tickets left for FT Money's Reader event, which is all about inheritance tax. You can meet our star columnist, Meryn Somerset Webb, and ask experts questions. To be held in London on the evening of Monday the 19th of June, tickets cost £30 and are available now on ft.com com slash IHT event. Full terms and conditions are online. In the run-up to the election, politicians have been keen to tell us there is no magic money tree to solve the problem of how to fund social care or build more affordable homes. But could more quantitative easing provide the answer? This is one question that Baroness Ros Altman has posed this week in a column she's written for FT Money, examining the effects of the monetary stimulus. And she joins me now on the line. Welcome, Ros. Hi, Claire. Nice to be here. It's always lovely to have you on. Now, you've written about QE, a policy that essentially got us out of the financial crisis. Thank goodness for that. But you fear that when economic historians look back, they will not view QE very favourably. Why? Well, I do have some concerns that we don't really know what will happen with this policy. It was designed as an experiment against economic collapse, Mm. a sort of emergency measure to artificially lower long-term interest rates by buying government bonds with newly created money in order to boost growth. So we were expecting that that would boost the economy with wealth effects and uh, portfolio balance effects and all kinds of other reflationary elements. However, it has had some pretty negative side effects. And in particular, it has undermined pensions. Pension liabilities have increased significantly because they are measured relative to long-term bond yields. And the lower bond yields go, the more expensive pensions become. Companies are struggling with pension deficits. So in a way, this has been the final nail in the coffin for final salary schemes. But also the policy has distorted investment risk making asset allocation decisions much more difficult because we don't quite know 
what has happened to investment risk when the central bank itself has artificially reduced the interest rate on what was supposed to be the risk-free asset that everything else is priced against. Now, you also believe, as you set out in the piece, that QE has exacerbated inequality. Why is that? Well, I think it's pretty well documented that inequality will have increased as a result of QE policies. It was, again, originally designed as a temporary policy, but of course the economy has recovered and we we are certainly not in an economic emergency anymore, but QE continues. And that continually has boosted asset prices, which is the aim of the policy. But assets are very unequally distributed across the economy. The top 10% own well over half the assets, and 80% of assets are held by the over 45s. Most average earners or young people will therefore not have benefited as much as the, the wealthiest or, for example, on house prices, those who already own their own home will have seen house prices increase significantly. But anyone who doesn't yet have uh, a foot on the housing ladder will have been affected by the rise in rents that is associated with higher house prices. So they will actually have potentially lower disposable income and If young people have savings, they tend to be in cash. And, of course, interest rates on cash accounts and savings accounts have been extremely low with no offsetting benefit in terms of boosting the price of the uh, asset held because it is just in cash. There is also research recently that suggests because of the pension impacts of QE, the companies which are trying to fill their pension deficits, which uh, have opened up uh, as a result largely of quantitative easing and the fall in long-term rates, have ended up earning less because employers who are spending money on their deficits are ending up paying lower wages to their workforce than companies who have similar workers but aren't trying to put money into their pension schemes. So some people's wages have been hit by the fallout from quantitative easing. And I just don't think that these impacts have yet been fully understood or fully recognised. And indeed, because it's really still an experiment that hasn't yet ended, we don't quite know all the side effects and how they will play out in the longer run. Now, finally, you also pose the question of what might happen with QE longer term, and what could be the next stage for policymakers in this great experiment? So instead of creating new money to finance old borrowing, perhaps the next stage could be to make more effort to use the long-term assets that we currently have to boost growth directly, At the moment, pension funds are being urged to keep buying more bonds because that is supposed to be lower risk for them than the traditional higher risk assets like equities. But just buying bonds is in in the end competing with the Bank of England and other central banks that are themselves trying to buy the bonds, which is a vicious circle pushing long rates down continually lower while also not directly boosting growth, whereas if one used the pension assets 
to fund growth-producing projects that could also provide returns to the pension fund better than bonds. And, of course, don't forget that many European bonds now have negative interest rates. And one has to ask the question whether they are offering risk-free returns anymore or are they just return-free risk? Well, thanks very much there to Baroness Ros Altman. You can read her guest column in FT Money this weekend in the FT Weekend newspaper or online now at ft.com slash money. Finally, you can't have a general election without introducing some pensions tension. Money readers will have noticed that none of the major parties have had much to say at all on the subject of pensions tax relief. So joining me in the studio to discuss now are Josephine Cumbo, our multi-award winning pensions correspondent, and Tom McPhail the also award-winning Head of Retirement Policy at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. So I'll kick off by asking you, what are the key pensions issues you'd like to see the next government address? There's a lot of unfinished business with retirement saving policy. I'd very much like to see the next government, whoever forms the next government, to look at bringing together a a joined-up coherent savings policy. I think there's a strong argument for a savings commission, something to act as a focal point to examine the question of why we're not saving more for retirement and how we can better achieve that goal of helping millions of people to save and invest for the long term and ultimately to build up decent retirement pots. And Joe, that's a view you broadly share. Yes, I agree with Tom on all of those points. But for me, the biggest pension issue has to be getting people to save adequately for retirement. We have millions of people who have been brought into workplace pension saving in recent years, which is all great news. But they really need to save five times more than they are now. And that's a big challenge. So getting pensions saving levels up to an adequate level has to be a priority for the new government going forward. And Tom, now you've been thinking and working about pensions uh, for a long time now. I'm really interested to know what role you think pensions tax relief could play in dealing with some of the issues that you've raised. My my principal concern around pension tax relief is that it costs the government a huge amount of money, £48 billion a year, more than they spend on defence. There's a big chunk of the, the, the annual budget allocated to pensions. It's inefficient. It's poorly allocated. It's poorly understood. Most people don't even understand the benefit of the tax relief they get from the Treasury. So the Treasury is spending this money. No one recognises that. So the whole system is ripe for reform. It's riddled with inconsistencies and complexities that challenge and obstruct people who want to save for retirement. I would love to see the government really revisit the work they did on rethinking how tax relief is delivered to look at a simpler, more effective system more that, that, that encourage people to put money aside for their retirement. But the problem we have is that the default setting for the Treasury at the moment is the simple answer. It's just a kind of salami slice away at allowances. And I think the challenge is to try and find a way through all of that and to give them a, a system that would address those challenges I've And just in on. terms of what you think might be a good reform, would that be switching to a flat rate of relief currently? There's high rate relief and basic rate. I think there's two areas to look at. One is the concern around how much of the money is channelled into final salary pension schemes. The Treasury is fire-hosing money, huge quantities of money, into final salary schemes, really to the detriment of the millions of people who are now building up retirement savings pots in in personal pensions and defined contribution pensions. So that needs revisiting. And then specifically to your question, Joe, on, on the tax relief, one solution 
would be to go to a flat rate, a very simple message of for every £3 you put in, we the government will put in £1. As an incentive, that would be far more effective. But there are more radical alternatives. You could weight the system in favour of younger savers. You could say the younger you are, the more of a top-up you get from the government. So you could come up with an age-related system. However you do it, it has to be simple and it has to be fair. And it has to appeal to the voters. I guess that was one of the issues that perhaps prevented the previous Conservative government from making any major changes to pensions. Now, the Labour and Conservative manifestos, as Claire mentioned, were silent on pensions tax relief. Should listeners take away from this that there won't be any major changes in the new parliament? The Liberal Democrats, to their credit, specifically flagged up that they wanted to see a reform of pension taxation. I think it's unlikely they will be forming the next majority government. But, but, but you know, the fact that it is there as, as a political issue, I think, is still a very good thing. In answer to your question, just because they didn't specifically address it in their manifestos doesn't mean it won't be on the agenda. But I think the, the concern is that their default setting will be this salami slicing approach. Mm. And we know how much this upsets mm. people. Investors hate it when their allowances keep getting cut and so more just, restrictions just are brought in. Just talk us through the salami slicing, as you say. It's a great phrase. We've what have we seen We've in seen pro- progressive cuts to the lifetime allowance, the amount of tax-free pension pot you can build up. It's gone from £1.8 million down to £1 million. The annual allowance, which at one point was as high as £255,000, frankly, a bit generous, has come down to 50,000 then to 40,000 we've had the tapered annual allowance that yeah. targets higher earners we've had particularly the m- hated by money readers we've had the money purchase annual allowance which is a real problem for people in their 50s and 60s who might come out of the workforce dip into their pension pots and then look to save again in the future the the treasury's looked at cutting that money purchase annual allowance from 10,000 a year down to 4,000 a year it's just constantly chipping away and, and, and bringing further complexity into the system. And as you say, Claire, people hate it. Just in terms of the lifetime allowance, it's one million. Some people might think that sounds like quite a generous amount, but it's actually hitting middle England in some ways, isn't it? You've got head teachers on high salaries who've been long serving, etc. So how much further of that salami slicing could we see, do you think is likely, without having the effect of damaging saving going forward. I think we've hit that limit already mm. and I mm. think we from 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 the 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 correspondence and the phone calls we get at Hargreaves Lansdowne, as you say, your readers Mm. here at the FT, we already know people are really fed up with the fact that their their allowances are being cut back. I think you you can always cut the lifetime allowance more, you can always cut the Mm. annual allowance more, but we're really eating into people's uh, commitment to saving and their willingness to engage with the system. And I think that the Treasury is at risk of doing real damage already in how far they've gone. And this, again, is why I think there is an imperative to try and find a way through this to try and come up with a, a radical solution, if not a once and for all, at least something that takes us beyond this salami slicing into some clear water on the other side. All right, we don't have a crystal ball, so we can't see <laughs> exactly what's going to happen in the future just now. But if it's anything to, to if past performance is anything to go by previous interruptions by the Chancellor and interpension policy have created more problems, arguably, than they've solved.
Thank yes. you very much for joining us, Tom. And we await with bated breath the results of the budget after the election. Goodness me, I'm sure we'll get you both back in the studio to discuss whatever happens. That's all from The Money Show this week. If you've got a story that you'd like us to follow up or a question to pose to our team of financial experts, get in touch. Email us money at ft.com, tweet us at ftmoney or comment on our articles online at ft.com slash money. We'll be back next Thursday. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. At the usual time. Goodbye.